excessively jaunty music coming up in three, two, one. Welcome to episode two of It's Lit But Is It Funny, the podcast where we prize apart the delicate clockwork mechanism of literary comedy and watch in horror as a thousand tiny pieces spray in every direction like a shower of sparkling metallic confetti. My name is Jonathan Pinnock and I'm the author of the Mathematical Mystery series published by Farago Books, about which a reviewer on Amazon once commented, some people might enjoy constant swearing, casual sex and recreational drug use. This, however, should not be a main part of a novel. I've literally, no about that. <laughs> I've literally no idea which book he was talking about because it certainly wasn't one of mine anyway. Anyway, our guest today is the very funny Isabel Rogers, who is a poet and novelist. I should perhaps emphasize that Isabel is not just any old poet. She won the Cardiff International Poetry Competition in 2014 and had a collection, Don't Ask, published by Iwear Books in 2017. More impressive still, she was the Hampshire Poet Laureate in 2016 and 2017. Don't hold that against me. No, I certainly won't. I I think this just (laughs) demonstrates how high the bar is already being set for guests on this podcast. (laughs) Uh, We'll have Armitage on her before the year's out, mark my words. Fighting talk. Yeah, absolutely. More significantly, as far as we're concerned, she's also the author of the three books so far in the excellent Stockwell Park Orchestra series, also published by Farago Books. Life, Death and Cellos, Boulders Brass, and most recently, Continental Riff. So this is definitely a Farago special today, and perhaps this is the point where we should point out that this is Farago Books, the humorous fiction specialist we're talking about here, not the very excellent Virago Books, who would almost certainly not let me into their list on account of me being a bloke. Oh, how many conversations have you had to have to explain uh, that? Quite, quite a few, quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly less than you, because I think people would assume that Well, yes, case. yes. Yeah. Actually, if, if it wasn't for you, I, I, I probably wouldn't have ended up being published by Farago at all. Oh, that's right. I pointed it you out. Were the, you, yeah, you were the one who, 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 who retweeted uh, Abby Hayden's call for anyone who had a series of comic novels that needed a publisher. That's right. Sorry, everybody. And, I inflicted Jonathan on you. I know you did, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't actually have a series of comic novels, but I had a comic novel that I thought I could, I could probably squeeze another one out of. So um, That's how yeah, it all starts. Started. Yeah. It does. It's, it's always the, the, the strangest little connections that um, cause these things. Well, thank yeah, you well, for inv- inviting me on. This is just a brilliant idea that you've had for a podcast. Well, thank you. If it keeps going, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I've, I've actually just started doing it at the precise moment where people are getting really sick of everyone producing a podcast. I've, I've started, I've started, I don't know if it's my antenna, my antenna are more attuned to it now, but I keep seeing people say, oh God, not another bloody podcast. Well, we better crack but, uh, on because the most annoying yeah. thing about podcasts is the, the, the faff at the beginning. Come on. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. This is very <laughs> point. This is right. We'll talk more about Isabel and her work later. But for now, we're going to talk about 1066 and all that, or to give it its full title, 1066 and all that, a memorable history of England comprising all the parts you can remember, including 103 good things, five bad kings and two genuine dates by W.C. Sellen, R.J. Yateman, uh, published in October 16th, 1930. So why did you pick this one? Can I just get an apology in first? Um, Because Mm. I haven't picked one of my favorite women comic writers and I should have, (laughs) but in my defense, one of them had already been picked, I understand for this show anyway. And also you you kind of sold it as one of the the comic books that made you laugh first and and has been Mm. formative in your, in your, you know, forming your comic thinking. And that really is the old stuff because, you know, I I was a kid in the eighties and I grew up and, I only had things that had gone before, which I'm afraid were mostly men. So let's just get that out of the way. Having said all that, this this is just, I've been going through it again this week and, and howling with laughter. It was one of the first books I ever read that made me chuckle out loud, uncontrollably sometimes that, that my stomach was hurting. And I couldn't, I've never come across a book that, that did 
the jokes on the levels that they did. I mean, I'm, I absolutely adore history. I'm a, a complete history nut. And there's no way I get all the jokes that they make about history. But they're not only making taking the piss out of history, they're taking the piss out of, of how it's taught in British mm. schools and also about the, the production of a book. I mean, you, you mentioned this, this brilliant uh, subtitle with bad kings and two genuine dates, and I hope you enunciated the initial capitals in that because it's just brilliant. Oh, yeah. But then they, it, it's the second page or something in it, it says something about the preface to the second edition, because it was the second edition. And they, they claim that the first edition was only one copy and, and printed on rice paper and bound in buckboards and signed by one of the editors and somebody left it in a cab or something. <laughs> So this is the second one. All the way through the book, it's it's jokes about how books are made, and then they got the errata. Do you remember the errata? And right at the very oh, beginning, yes. and then something like uh, page fifty-four: pheasant read peasant throughout. Throughout. Just it yeah. it sounds ridiculous, and it is ridiculous, and I'm never yeah. going to apologise for for liking an extremely silly book. But you, 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 people talk about postmodernism, but it, it's 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 totally postmodern, isn't it? It's wonderful. They they come at things sideways. Yeah, exactly. And and I don't know anything about the authors. I imagine they were, you know, Oxford educated men. Certainly a lot of the jokes are uh, skewed that way. And they're undoubtedly white and probably upper class and went through the public school system. This is just me making stuff up, really. But pretty correct. I I imagine that's how it was. And yet, and yet, when you go through the book, um, towards the end, there's they've got a whole list of why we went to war they've got about seven or eight lists of, of things so i'm just i've made notes even i'm looking at my notes now a wave of justifiable wars and they go through them all and they're all ridiculous mm. empire-led wars obviously but but a book that oh, yeah, was yeah. written then by men like that being that anti essentially empire i think must have been quite subversive yeah very much so i mean i was I was thinking about uh, Oliver Dowden, as you do. Yeah. And for, for uh, overseas listeners to this podcast, Oliver Dowden is our culture secretary, I believe, and he has sort of put this... Well, they tell us that. Th- yeah, they tell us that. They, 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 <laughs> he's put out this, this idea that we must defend our culture and history for the noisy minority of activists constantly trying to do Britain down. And, you know... It, Not a shred is, of self-awareness. No. And, <laughs> but... You know, where, where, where does 26 and all that fit into this that, that as well? Well, I think he should read it. Yeah, I mean, just going back to the, the war be. thing, I've, I've found my notes now. They've got a list of seven mm. things. And it starts with, uh, you know, war with China, war with Afghanistan. Second Burmese war caused, there'd only be one Burmese war. <laughs> Burmese cut to piece, pieces. Burma ceded to the crown, peace with Burma. And it goes on and on and on. And then it ends with uh, number seven, war against Zulus caused the Zulus. Zulus exterminated, peace with Zulus. It's it's really cutting how they managed mm. to get their point across without being in in the slightest bit po faced and serious about it. Yeah, which I is often think... how the best comedy works. Absolutely, yeah. Because the the the, the chapter sixty one, the Great War, st- starts off with King Edward's new policy of peace was very successful and cul- culminated in the Great War to end war. <laughs> and then there was the pe- the Great Peace to end peace or something, wasn't it? After yeah. This, this could degenerate into us just reading our favourite bits out, which it, it, wouldn't it, it, necessarily be a bad thing, but can I just mention that the best thing... We need to thing, be more analytical, obviously. We, we should. It's, <laughs> it follows a textbook thing. So the, one of the hilarious things about it is that they have test papers every now and then. I mean, I'd never seen this in a book before. Had you in a, a comic book? No, no. And, and they'd, they'd sort of, um, amid the ridiculous questions and, and all the history jokes that they could do, they have just stupid wordplay. And I remember reading this, and I'd, I must have been about, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, and reading test paper one, number eight, and it's been burned into my brain ever since. <laughs> it says, have you the faintest recollection of one, Ethelbreth, two, Athelthrall, or three, Thruthelthrolf? And I remember reading this, <laughs> I was thinking, how, how do they come up with this? And every time I now watch some a program about, you know, Alfred the Great and all the Anglo-Saxon kings, I can't help giggling. Mm. The, the, and they keep getting Alfred and Arthur modelled up, don't they, I think? 
Oh, they get everything muddled up. Uh, uh, yeah. It's hilarious. They yeah. <laughs> a bit further on, they've got um, a, a chapter on on Napoleon, and then the next chapter is on Nelson, or the other way around. I can't remember. And they're they're mm. very insistent that you don't get them muddled up, but they put the wrong thing in the wrong chapter heading, and then they mm. insist that it's it's very easy to distinguish between them because Nelson had his hand like this, and <laughs> Napoleon had his hand like that, and of course there are no pictures. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I'm waving my hands around, which you can't appreciate on a podcast either. I'm my favorite ones. I mean, how do you feel about puns in general? Because it, I, it, I think difficult a lot thing. of people can, can get very stiff about puns, but they, they, they are quite relentless in in this at times. They are. They. But, but some of them are very very sophisticated. They are. Uh, they they the puns with knowledge. Yeah. And and the, that's the, the multi-language ones. Yes. I mean, the, the absolute genius of the translation of Oniswaki Malipons. <laughs> yes. Which literally means, according to Wikipedia, some shame on anyone who thinks evil of it. And of course, they translate it as honey, your silk stockings hanging down. Yes. And it's plausible because soir, well, that sounds a bit like the French for silk. <laughs> and pense, sound, well, it could touch something with hanging down. And Malipons would hanging down badly. So, yeah, it, it, it's entirely plausible. It's all rooted in possibility, yes. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely genius. I suppose my, my view on puns is um, I've got a very fond, I, I look on them with a huge fondness, but I can absolutely um, understand why some people get enormously pissed off with them because they, mm. they can be quite annoying. If they're used without a, a point behind them, I suppose. Yeah. But I, this I saw... one's... Go on, sorry. Sorry, I was, I was interrupting, sorry, carry on. I'd forgotten now. I was, I was waiting for your so, gem. Sorry. Oh dear, right. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I just must learn to stop interrupting. Um, I was going <laughs> to say, I saw someone on Twitter complaining about people making puns as a defence mechanism. I'd never seen it that way before. And I think it's, well, the, I the point was that they, the, the pun maker. Mm, yeah, it was, was trying to use that to stop, to sort of, as a barrier, I suppose, to, to, to conversation. Well, that, that could be said of comedy through the mm. ages, couldn't it? I mean, the, yeah. the, it's much easier to deflect something than, than actually meet it head on. And why not? I think people should reserve mm. the right to do that. Mm. Um, yeah. I think people should chill out, especially on Twitter. They don't have to um, <laughs> do anybody, do they? If they don't no. like what somebody's punning about, then they could just not look. Mm. It just struck me as an unusual comment. I never thought about it before. Well, yeah. I don't know. I, th I think I think puns are good, as, as long as they are. They have their place. They have their place as as part of the the repertoire of of of, of, of com comic effects. Exactly. Yes, I think if it's if it's your only go to weapon, then I can mm. think it it might wear thin pretty soon. But um, goodness, these these boys deploy them <laughs> with utter skill, <laughs> and yeah. it's it's just wonderful. And not yeah. only puns, they they. They play with language in a way that it it brings you back to learning history at school because quite often you were staring out of the window or maybe at their age pulling wings off a fly or something. I've no idea what they did in the 1930s in probably a boys' school, but I think that's what they did, isn't it? That's what I learn. Um, but you, you're not, often not concentrating. So you quite often get either the dates wrong or the, the names wrong. And they play with the, getting the names wrong so well. Yeah. There's a couple of things I wanted to bring up I mean in their chapter about the the pretenders waves of pretenders the old pretender and the young pretender they go from Lambert Simnel and Perkin Warbeck and within a few lines they've got Perkin Warmnall and then a Purbeck and then a Wimneck <laughs> right at the end it says while others declared that it was not all it, it was not Warmneck at all but Lambkin and that Permel had been dead all the time really like like Queen Anne and it's just you know it ricochets off one permutation to another and then it dives off into something else completely and the other yeah. one I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to talk about and I was talking to my my teenage son about it only at lunchtime today I'm I'm very fond of Florence Nightingale I was I got into history quite early on and I I devoured all the uh, ladybird history books which of course are completely horrendously whitewashed through and and are very un-PC now but that what gave me my, my love of history and all the wonderful illustrations when you're about eight is fabulous and mm. I you know I knew my Florence Nightingale one off by heart and in there Florence Nightingale 
chapter, they start off with Florence Nightgown, and then she turns into Flora McNightshade. And by the end of the chapter, she's Flora McNightlight, open brackets, the lady with the deadly lampshade, close brackets. I mean, <laughs> it's just glorious. Yeah, it's wonderful stuff. But I can um, also understand why people would think it was very silly and not worth the time, you know? So, mm. I don't know. I, th I think, have you read any of, the, any of their other books? No, I haven't. None of them. Now, for the purposes of research, I oh, actually did. And are you going to tell me they're awful? <laughs> well, I, and, and now all this is basically the same formula applied to other aspects of knowledge, which are a rather random selection. There's a bit on um, mind and uh, or mind and body, or body cure, as they call it. Uh, a bit on geography. Is this still written in the 30s? Yeah. Polar exploration. Psycho baby craft, which is obviously, I don't know what. <laughs> that sounds what a that, precursor to the 60s. Yeah, it is very much so. Uh, knitting. Of course. Um, no, because we complete without a knitting paragraph. Uh, birds. It, it, it's a strange collection. And uh, it's. Oh, you're going to say it's not as good. It's not as good. Um, I could hear that. I could hear you behind your yeah, hand. Yeah. Dear I'm, listeners, I'm we be, can't see I'm, each other. I'm trying to be polite about it but it just isn't hasn't got the same spark to it and I don't know why and I'm trying I've been trying to work out why and I think it's they're trying to apply a successful formula you can't retrofit this and you can't retrofit it it's it's um, really got to come you know yeah. from the other end of it it does I bet their publishers said oh that would be nice to have a series why don't you write another yeah. one there's a lesson yeah, to us all in there right. Jonathan indeed <laughs> they, they, yeah, yeah this is a very good point <laughs> This is this is this is not good for our our potential uh, readers here, you know. No, did they write that one together? <laughs> they did, yeah. And then did uh, they go on to write things separately? There are know? there are two more: oh, horse God. nonsense, which is all about horses, mm -hmm. and garden rubbish, which is about gardening and nature. Goodness, well, I've not but, read any of those. Yeah, some of it, um, of course, could be you as a reader having experienced the first one and have, have sort of prepaid all the jokes in your head. So therefore, when you get to a similar something, you're way ahead of it. So it could well be that uh, we poison ourselves from reading the first one. And actually, it's just as good, but maybe not after the first one, if you see what I mean. Yeah, you could, you could well be right there. If we read them in a different order, maybe our thought would be reversed. I don't know. Yeah. I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I, th I, think, I think you might be right. Yeah, I think I, the test of a good book is if it stays with you for, in my case, decades. I mean, mm. I read this first when I was, as I said, you know, 12, 13, 14. I can't remember how old I was. And I have been giggling about bits of it when I come across other things, either historical or literary, in my life. And I've just been giggling about things ever since. And yeah, I, 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 a book to be able to do that is extraordinary. Yeah, that mirrors my experience of it exactly the same. I, I, I read it similar age, maybe, I yeah. don't know, some sort of age. Was it on your parents' bookshelves? My parents weren't great readers and they didn't have many books, but this was one of them. I remember reaching up to the top shelf. Yeah, probably next to the Naked Ape or something I wasn't supposed to read. Um, <laughs> and I dragged it down. And, you know, it's a whole new world. It's brilliant. Yeah. This edition I've got is 1960. So, yes, that would have been my yep. dad buying that book. Yeah. Oh, no, no, sorry. Reprinted 1967. So, I, I might have bought that one myself, having looked at it at school. I don't know. Well, there you go. Yeah. But it, it, I mean, that and also the Willens and Searle uh, Molesworth books. Yes. Were goodness. Very much yes. in the same sort of vein. Yes, and I read them probably about the same time as well. Yeah. Mm. Is anybody else on this podcast series picking those? Do you know yet? No, I haven't had anyone pick that. Uh, Toby last time said uh, he'd considered it. Yeah. And I, I, I would certainly be interested in, in uh, talking to someone about that. I suppose if, if you'd, you know, grew up in Britain and we're of an age, I guess a lot of our influences will be similar and it'll be drawn mm. from a small pool. And it'd be interesting to, to find out, you know, the, the most popular formative comic books that we've all read, given but what I, I think, with. yeah, I, I think if you look at 
I don't know. I think people, if they're discussing comedy, they sort of say things, they have this idea that modern comedy maybe started with, depending on when you grew up, The Goons or Beyond the Fringe or Python or whoever comes after that. The young ones maybe after Python, I don't know. Well, um, yeah, they wanted to take it on, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And, and they're they're all the and Then French and Saunders and Victoria Wood came in. Yes. Revolutionising. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, if you'd asked me to bring my favourite sitcom, Dinner Ladies, no question. Mm. Forensically well written, but it's not technically a book, so I couldn't choose it. But I do, I feel the burden as, as a, a woman trying to write comedy that all my formative influences were male. And mm. it's... I don't know. You, I used to. I was a complete Python head when I was a kid, and now they grate on me. Maybe it's because I've um, grown up and got more cynical, or maybe I've just got more, you know, bullshit feminist, or I don't know. It, mm. it doesn't resonate with me in the same way that it it once did. No, I, I don't find Python quite as funny as I used to find it. The the one that surprises me about how it how well it still works is Round the Horn. Well, and I, yes. I, I, I grew up listening to that on Sunday afternoon. So you might be slightly older than I am. I yeah, didn't. just if it's a slightly older, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although my parents were complete goon fanatics, so they had records. Yeah, I, I, was too, I was too, too late for the goons. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm, although I, 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 I do enjoy the goons, but I, haven't, I don't listen to them. I haven't listened to them as much as, as the likes of Round the Horn. Yeah, yeah. Now, Round the Horn's got a, just a, a stupendous reputation as, as mm. really um, tight writing. Um, and Marty Feldman and Barry Turk. Yeah. And I think it was referenced in um, an episode of John Fiedemore's Cabin Pressure when they have just escaped from Doos Airport and they're driving down a desert road in an aircraft and this is at the very end and somebody says, right hand down a bit. And I think he admitted that he'd been influenced by. Oh, right. No, right in time, the bit. That is Navy Oh, lark. no, it's that's the, the Navy Lark. Oh, yes. <gasps> Beg your pardon. Goodness. Which is another anyway, one. Comedy to... reference is wrong. You're drumming oh, out of the podcast. I know. I know. Terrible. Yeah, that was, uh, that was another one that used to turn up on, um, on Sunday afternoon after lunch. Yeah. Memories of disappearing after, after Sunday lunches and... Uh, <laughs> and uh, Hiding in my room, listening to uh, radio. Was it the light? Was it Radio Two? Was the light program? Please tell me it's Radio Two. <laughs> or the home service or something like that. No, no, that I'm not that old. I'm not that old. Surely not. Well, um, I didn't have yeah. the charge, you see, because I spent all my Sunday mornings in um, youth orchestra rehearsals, so it was always a big rush. I wasn't allowed to do comedy. I had to do music. Oh right, yes. But it stood me in good stead in the end. I, I feel I feel a segue coming on. <laughs> but youth orchestras that's perfectly done well you have to get your ideas from somewhere don't you yeah that was right um maybe this is the time to start talking about the stockwell park orchestra series we don't have to other things are much more funny no no we'll 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 we'll, 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 we'll definitely talk about those which i, I try to describe them I, i'd say they are deceptively light comedies with a definite hard edge to them oh well yes <laughs> <laughs> Most, some people don't notice the hard edge, but yes. No, but there, there is, there, there's, uh, there's some class warfare going on. And there is a bit of politics. Yeah. One, yes. I, they, they are, and, and when they start out, they're much more horrible than they, they turn out. Because as you know, Abby Heaton is just a wonderful, wonderful person. And quite often she'll get back to me on when I've just eviscerated some character by some awful thing that they've done. And they said, oh, is, is, is that really necessary for that? Can we show it in another way? And I think, oh, you're absolutely right. And you're so much nicer than me. And thank God you're my editor. <laughs> but, yes. yes, editors are wonderful. They are. They can save me. you from all sorts of things. <laughs> yes. It was very interesting. A, a couple of weeks ago, I got invited to talk about the first one, the, the cello one, mm. with an online thing called the Cello Museum, which is sort of worldwide thing run out of America. And we had to oh, yeah. um, do it. I was on their, their first guest on their very first book club thing when we had listeners from all over the world. And it was terrifying because instead of talking about a book to book people, which I'm quite happy and, and used to doing, I was talking about a, a musical bit 
book to musicians and I will I just thought oh they're probably much better cellists than me and it was just a little bit nerve-wracking but in fact they were delightful and it was all right but oh it's funny how how bits of your life intersect like that it must be same with you and maths well yes I I, I, tell, I live in fear of, of <laughs> talking of to a, an audience talking to a bunch of mathematicians because <laughs> how can I put this that that they mathematicians as a class careful now are, are less the social skills are, are less well developed and uh, <laughs> I, I would I would include myself in this category that, 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 but look um, at you doing a podcast oh I know this is this is what it's part of my part of my self um <laughs> self training to to uh, overcome this sort of thing but <laughs> we, <laughs> we t- tend not to be so good at, at uh at interacting with people and that kind of thing. Well, as long um, as we don't have to do an arithmetic test at the end of this. I'll yeah. Well, and the other, the other thing is, is that my knowledge of mathematics I, is, is a little bit rusty and I had to keep going, going back to sort of to relearn things to actually introduce them into, uh, in, into the books. But it, your knowledge is probably vastly superior to most of your readers, myself included. So I think you should rest easy, frankly. Oh, it's, it's, it's this thing if you have to sort of be at least two pages ahead in the in the reference book before, when, when you're teaching someone, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean that. that well, it, it, oh, it, 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 sorry, go go on. I've got a question. No, no, I, well, I was, I, I was going to ask you about the uh, the characters in 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 the Stockwell Park Orchestra because they're, they're they're so believable. They just recognise anyone who's ever played in an orchestra or sung in a <laughs> choir or any similar collective endeavour. Yes. Uh, Are they too believable? Did I steal anyone whole? Is that really your question? Um, well, would anyone recognise themselves? <laughs> um, it's very very funny because I know that the true answer is I didn't steal anybody whole completely. Yes, I nicked bits of people of course and there are you know observations that you'll put ascribe to a character here and there but it was extremely funny after my the, the first one came out which in, if people haven't read it there, there's one character called Mrs Ford Hughes who is a mezzo-soprano mm. and she's not as good as she thinks she is at singing by a long chalk so they think Florence Foster Jenkins and things like that but honestly I, <laughs> I had maybe half a dozen sopranos that I know and altos come up to me and sidle up to me nervously and say who did you base (laughs) (laughs) and honestly I could not make my eyes wide enough and innocent enough to convince each one of them that it really wasn't them but I've left a whole wake of worried musicians in 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 behind me you know um I don't know we we make it up we're allowed to make stuff up but sometimes people don't believe that that's what my lawyers have told me to say anyway yeah absolutely <laughs> it's good fun it's good fun yeah uh, the, the other thing that really comes across is your absolute love of the music and and, and the writing about the music is, is something that is, is lovely now, I just oh thank to, you I, I, was, I was going to pick out an example to... oh heavens right now I've got to cringe away from my microphone go on yeah go on <laughs> in the uh, your description of them rehearsing the marriage of figure overture and oh, yeah. the phrase the phrase passed to the violins and out of this suddenly intimate string quartet like texture the first bassoon rose to prominence on staccato accidentals like a water bird running over uneven ground towards a lake on ungainly legs only to glide off a moment later with the legato tune all to itself i mean that's gorgeous well, there you stuff. go and <laughs> <laughs> i never let an image go if i can possibly grab it and shove it in mm. some people say that's overwriting i just say it's, i'm enjoying myself yeah absolutely I'm a poet. I can do what I like. Well, I guess that is the the, the next question that arises: how, how much of your uh, experience of writing poetry does that inform your your fiction writing? Oh, it's it's huge. I think probably bigger than I would dare to admit. Really, I'm very pleased that I I've had that grounding. I mean, I was a, a short story writer before I had any success in in poetry at all. But the years of studying and hopefully improving my poet side of things, I think has, has taught me an enormous amount of, of looking closely at a text. And um, I mean, I had the music influence anyway, but, but poetry 
emphasizes the, the fact that you've got to listen to the rhythm of a sentence and you can hear the, the musicality and the rise and fall of a phrase. And especially reading my poetry work out loud, you can instantly tell if, if a line is, is comfortable with itself and, and you know, is, is whole. And there's this bit about if you finish a poem and you, you some, sometimes you can get the impression that I'm getting very serious now here, sorry about this. You can kind of interlock the, the lines and somehow you can tell it's working and you it, the, the poem seems to ring on its own. And sometimes you can transfer that, I wouldn't necessarily call it a skill, but maybe just a, a, an observation that I practiced on say a paragraph or something. And, and you can just tell it's working. And I don't think I would have that level of analysis if I hadn't put those years in writing poetry. Sure, that's a very long answer to a short question, but um, I can still no, write. That's, that's a good answer. Yeah, no, well. yeah. But I'm really pleased I've got, but I mean, going, harking back, this is another analogy I use. Um, when I was a kid, I was a, a gymnast. I did loads of gymnastics and also ballet. And I did it um, with kids that only did ballet and only did gymnastics and doing both informed both disciplines for me. So I wasn't necessarily one of those spiky gymnasts on a beam. I could make a, a sort of, you know, curve of my arm. And then I had more strength than other ballet people that I knew because I'd done all the gymnastics as well. So one mm. helped the other, I think. And I think it's exactly the same with, with poetry and prose myself. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. every, um, I'm, I'm evangelizing now, aren't I? I think every prose writer should do a little bit of poetry and mm. vice versa. Yeah. No, I would, uh, I would entirely agree with that. And that's not funny, but it's true. Yeah, no, it's, it's very, very important. The question yeah, I was I'll... going to ask you about your your maths, because it, it, it's allied to um, the question I get asked about the the music bits, because obviously there's a lot of technical stuff in there, but I had to sometimes make it a little bit easier to understand for people that maybe didn't play an instrument or had never sung in a choir or anything like that, and I had to walk this really tricky middle ground between not boring mm. the, the musicians I knew would be reading it and they say oh I know it's already and not leaving the non-musician completely floundering did you find that with any of your your mathematical intrigues yes yeah it, it is and a how very did you fine resolve line it? I, I don't know if I did <laughs> <laughs> I there was one there's one sequence where two characters are sort of flirting with each other, but trying to introduce maths at the same time, if you like. One's trying An everyday to explain occurrence. Maths, another one. Sorry? An everyday occurrence. An everyday occurrence. It's all the time. And I, I, was, I, this, I was writing this bit at the same time as I was doing my creative writing MA. And right. my tutor, Celia Brayfield, who's, who's a wonderful creative writing tutor, she, she wasn't that interested in the maths aspect of it, obviously, because she was more interested in the, in the creative writing stuff. Sure. Uh, but but she she said, this is actually quite sexy, this, isn't it, this bit? <laughs> I think your job had <laughs> and, been done. And I thought, ooh, right. Yes, that worked. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, so I was trying to, I, I, I thought I, I managed to smuggle in some of the maths under cover of, of, uh, of this sort of flirty scene going on. That's very cunning. And, and uh, I, I don't think I've managed to do it ever, ever since, but um, <laughs> I, I, I try to disguise it as far as possible and have it maybe... I mean, it needs to be accessible tell. for those who know it's there, uh, I guess, mm. which is a very difficult trick to pull off. So I there think. needs to be something else going on at the same time, but <laughs> yeah. it get interesting. Oh, that is my dog oh, being stupid. Sorry about this. Let me just go and get him out of the room. Sorry about that. Okay. Minus a dog. Is he okay? Yes, he's fine. Just <laughs> he can see the road, so he's very interested. Right. Sorry, well, where were we? How to how to slip in domain knowledge, I suppose, whilst not getting in the way of the story. Like, without showing off our without research. Showing off exactly. Yeah. And, and it's honestly that when you've tried to <laughs> tried to do it you can absolutely appreciate the difficulty of it and when I yeah. read other stuff from you know anybody else who who failed to do that I I despair yeah you can say because it's so much easier what... to snark at other people's bad writing than yeah. try and do you, it yourself yeah but you, you 
I mean, obvious example, but you, you look at Dan Brown and you say, yeah, if I've done my research and I'm going to bloody well use it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I've read one Dan Brown because I thought I should in my life. And oh, my God. I, I, that, that's I, all actually, I'm going to say, in fact. <laughs> Dan Brown is the closest. I, I don't believe in the phrase guilty pleasure, but Dan Brown is the, probably the closest I come to it. Because I, I've, I've, I read almost everything he does. Oh, do you? <laughs> oh dear! No, 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 I, I, I know he's, it's absolutely terrible stuff. But <laughs> it, it, it's, I do enjoy looking at the, the, the way he pulls the reader along by these constant, constant cliffhangers. Yes, and that is an I, art. I, 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 I love the art of that. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, and do you find yourself folding that into your own writing? Yeah, I tend to. I, 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 I do. I do like a good cliffhanger, <laughs> um, and uh, I, maybe even more than I should do. But, I think uh, we should do, do cliffhangers at the end of our, our chapters, and then in the middle we should write in a lull. So if somebody's reading in bed and, and really needs to mm. get an early night, you could say, you know, now's the time to close yeah, your eyes, not, not at the end that. of the chapter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, now I, I want to talk to you about Bruckner. Because oh my goodness! The, the I, I was so pleased to see Bruckner's seventh turn up in Continental Rift. Because, Why? Because well, not specifically the seventh, but uh, it's, it's it's just so good to see Bruckner putting an appearance in. Um, it's, this must be the first appearance in, in a comic novel by, for, for for Bruckner's. Symphony. It's not very fashionable, is it? No, I, I mean you, you, you. If you ever listen to the Classic FM Hall of Fame or whatever, you, or you won't find a, a single work by Anton Bruckner. I think it's a terrible shame because I'm a massive fan of him. I, I, I think looking back to it, I, I think it was probably my goth phase because I was born too early for Bauhaus or the Cure and that lot. And right. um, so, so Bruckner's Eighth was probably my go-to goth thing. Oh goodness, but, yes. And uh, um, I. I they're, I mean, they're that, absolutely massive, stupidly yeah. massive symphonies. Yes. Yeah. And half the time they, they won't get played because, you know, the ones with Wagner horns, certainly, they, they're just too expensive if people don't have access to the instrumentation that they need. Plus the fact they've all got, you know, triple woodwind and everything else. And Yeah. And also if you pick something like, like the third, you've got about six different editions to choose from because he can never make up his mind. <laughs> When he'd finally he finished it, and, and if you editor. listen, yeah, if you well, yeah, if you listen to the, the fourth movement of, of that, it's it's an absolute mess, and I, I do love it as as a metaphor for writing, particularly that that the, the fourth movement of the third symphony. And I'm going off on a complete tangent here. This is a Bruckner tutorial, folks. But but, but uh, so I may even cut this out. But <laughs> interrupt me if you want. But I, the thing is, the thing is about Bruckner's Third is, is there, there's this wonderful theme that started off in, in, the, in the minor key. And you know, right from the start, or if you've heard the piece a few times, you know that there is simply the greatest ending of any work in the Western musical canon. He's got lined up at the end of it. And that's, he that's has no quite idea a big where. Claim. It's a big claim, but I would stand by it. But. <laughs> Watch out, uh, I've got Brahms 2 in my next book coming up. Found a Brahms, but um, we'll, 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 we'll uh, park that for a moment. But the, the, the endings of Brooklyn's Third, where the, the, the brooding minor key theme returns in the, tri returns in the triumphant major key at the end of it, is absolutely magnificent, and it sends shivers down my spine to even think about it. But the thing is that he does not, he has this fantastic ending to the piece sorted out, but he has no idea how to get there. And I feel like we've we've all been there writing a novel. But we've got a great great idea at the end, and we're not quite sure how to get there. And if you listen to the start of the fourth movement, he starts off with this really really sort of stirring thing, epic sort of bish bash bosh tune going out. He's good at He's those. Like, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. And then he stops. But that's Bruckner all over. Yeah, Jonathan. and he stops and thinks, ah, oh, let's do something else, and. He does he, that all the time. Yeah, he does. He does it all the time. But it's, it just seems great. Great, more, much more than anything else in, in the third. And, and then he does the same thing. Keeps bashing it up. And then eventually, he says, oh, sod it, let's go for it. And he finally <laughs> just just goes for the the finale. <laughs> and 
And and then the finale is so good that everyone stands up and cheers and forgets what a mess it was to get there. But he's like that all the time. And I hear yeah. um, people that, you know, love Marla or Brahms or something like that. And they cannot stand Bruckner for precisely mm. that reason. Yes. And they think, oh, for God's sake, just say something and do it once, do it properly yeah. and then get on to the next bit. But yeah. I, I do have a soft spot for him because I used to play the horn as well. So there's some fantastic horn parts in Bruckner. Oh, God, yeah, I bet. But scary ones, like the, the is the fourth symphony has got the really big horn solo? Oh, I can't remember offhand. Boom, 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 boom. I don't know. Where you could, I'm, I'm sure I've heard it, where, where the... Uh, well, I would never horn, have been a good enough horn player to play the, first. The horn one. cracks it completely. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's easily done. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous instrument to play. So how, how do you manage to end up playing the tiptillo and, and the French horn? Well, I started on the cello um, and played it for years and then um, <laughs> decided I wanted to learn the horn as well and then went off the cello completely and insisted that I was going to be playing the, the horn in my school orchestra, which they let me bizarrely, um, and then realised I wasn't going to get very good and then sort of meandered back to the cello. So it's been a bit of a, a checkered thing. Mm. But again, it's with the poetry prose thing. I'm really pleased I played string and brass because it gives you yeah. um, knowledge into to all yeah. sorts of things that you wouldn't have just been playing one. And it, it stops that sectionals can they they can be very tribal, I think, and it mm. cuts across some of that at least, or at least I I know both of them so I can exploit both. Maybe that's it. Yeah. So you have actually encountered. Yeah, that does inform both all the uh, Stockwell Park Orchestra stuff. Oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then that's why I could write Alexander yeah. for the last mm. one, because I knew um, what it was like to, to play Strauss's first yeah. concerto and things like that. So mm. it's it's just good fun. I think it's just, I, I'm in essentially, I'm, I'm really, really lazy. So I don't want to go and research things if I can possibly drag it out of whatever buried memory I might have. So... I am furiously no, I, mining I, I, I anything can, I've I, ever I done can, in my life, so I, I don't have to totally look anything up. relate to that, yes. Yeah, research is... Oh, research it's much is easier. Yeah. A bit of memory and a bit of making up, and, mm. you know, here we are. Yeah. Job done. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what are you working on at the moment? Oh, it's book four. Oh, right. And I'm, I'm furiously trying to, to race down my, my deadline, which has been put sideways rather with lockdown and, and homeschooling and uh, looking after mm. an a yeah. elderly, um, quite poorly mother at the moment. So um, oh, it, it's, it's, it's not as, well, I, I keep feeling sorry for myself and, and not getting on with it. But frankly, I, I made the deadline for book three in last year's lockdown. So I know what I'm doing. So I should just be able to get <laughs> on with it. But yes, that is the next thing. Um, Great. And then I'll be up to your, you've done, you've done four. It's yep. all powering through. Yeah, so mine's, mine's coming out ooh, soon. Beginning of April. Beginning of April. Yes, yeah, that should be fun. Yeah. It's exciting. So, yeah. Are you still enjoying them? I certainly am. Yeah. Good. I don't know whether, whether the readers are enjoying them, but I'm certainly <laughs> enjoying writing them. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question. Do you feel you write your writing with audience in mind now? It's funny, isn't it? You because have, the... you are building an audience, aren't you? Yes. And the more I do, the more I hear from them, which is just adorable I, and mm. I just love hearing from somebody who's who's um well, probably liked the book but <laughs> and any <laughs> contact is brilliant but it's funny because they will come to me with oh this is my favorite character or this is and and why did you give him a girlfriend and <laughs> all this kind of stuff and you realize that these these people who've been living in your head are now living in somebody else's head and they're becoming emotionally attached to them and mm. and yes it's it's you fun. You're going back to the same characters and, and you feel a kind of responsibility to, to mm. do your best by them because you know other people are <laughs> waiting to hear what happens to them, which is very strange and delightful yeah. all at the same time. Yes. I, I mean, the, the, the characters, do you find there are, you have a character that emerges and then starts stealing scenes? and Sometimes, definitely, yes. Um, yeah. Quite often, it's it's the the new characters that I will have introduced per book because I've got to, in a sense, push them to the fore to to mm. speed dial their character up into the foreground so people know what they're dealing with. And I, I have been accused of using sort of cartoonish characters and and two dimensional and farcical things. And yes, I do. I would admit to all of that. 
um, simply to save time. And it's funny to make people larger than life. And yes, when you start writing things like that, they do tend to do ridiculous things and, and steal the scene. But I hope by the end of you know a story arc, the the my orchestral characters that are that you know that the the run from book to book will have fought through and um, even things up a bit. I don't know if that comes across at all. But yeah, no, it does. Yeah, no, there's there's a, it's a it's a really good sense of continuity of of, of, of the characters that. Uh... People say it's like um, going to the pub with their mates sometimes, and they yeah. do spend a lot of yes. time in the There's pub. Very much, and they're musicians. Yeah, that, yeah that, that, that's a good uh, good way of putting it. Yeah. Mm. So you got the fourth one is is nearing completion, or fingers crossed. Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, do you see yourself writing lots more of them? Or um, oh, I have no idea. If people want to read them, I would be delighted to write them. I I have no idea. I can't see or, past the end of the next one yet. So. Mm. We'll see what happens. My poetry friends have kept saying, when are you going to write another poetry book? So I Yeah, that was the other question, I guess. Is, uh... <laughs> I know. And I've got a poetry commission coming up, actually, just after the, my deadline for this. So I'm going to have to, to right. wrench my poetry brain back into existence, which <laughs> might be a bit of a lurch. We'll see. See what shakes out after that. And it's not nothing like you. You've got a proper job anyway that you have to do. So it must be yeah, well, even harder. It's along the background, you know. <laughs> <laughs> do you find that the plots of some novels that you, you you just leave your hindbrain to get on with it and then you turn around sometimes and, and there it is? Yes, I used to find that a lot with when I was writing short stories. Yeah. I mean, I, I did one, I did a couple of these stunt things where you get send a whole load of prompts every hour on the hour and you have to write. Oh my goodness, that sounds precious. And you have to write a story in that hour and then another one next hour and so on. Oh, I couldn't so do so that. Forth. Goodness me. Why and would you put yourself through that? It was, it was quite, it's just a fascinating thing to do. And one of my favourite stories I've ever written came out of that. Really? It just came out of the, and the thing is, it, it, the, the, the sheer pressure of time, if you allow yourself to write under that pressure, it... It, it cuts out the, the editor, doesn't it? It cuts out the editing, yeah. And it, it stops, I mean, the, the, this particular story that I'm, I'm thinking of involved a talking dog talking about maths in fact and uh <laughs> on brand it was obviously yeah it was obviously a ridiculous story but I didn't have time to stop and say this is stupid and I, I was just constantly I felt myself like sort of riding this riding a tiger if you like and trying to bring the story to some kind of conclusion and amazingly this conclusion popped up at the end of it that i just hadn't planned or anything and it's almost it was like a, unconscious free writing yeah it, it is almost like that and and certainly there are times I think that the, the truth about Archie and Pie I didn't really know I knew what was going to happen but I had no idea why your version and, of Brutus yeah exactly <laughs> and the why sort of emerged eventually uh, without me really trying to think it just suddenly appeared I thought, oh yeah that makes sense i'm and definitely a, a panster rather than a, a plotter. oh yeah mm. I've, I've tried doing it by ticking all the boxes and, and getting to the the right conclusion and it just falls flat it's like writing yeah. constantly with a, an editor on your shoulder and it squashes all the the creativity out of it in my case i know lots of people thrive on it but wouldn't it be boring if we we're all the same yeah that's right, because you see people who, who get all these post-it notes out and lay them out in a, in a, in a vast multicoloured array of what's happening to everyone. I've, and, I've done a, a course with Julie Cohen, who, who uses that mm. method, and that isn't so much a, from the front end trying to create the stuff, but it's really useful. I, I don't use it myself, but I can see, absolutely see the, the value of it. It's once you've written it, if you break it, down into scenes and and you know get get really granular about it drill down mm. into things and then you can work yeah. out which arc <clears throat> happens where and it enables you to to shift the the pacing of the story around a lot and it's just an easy way right. of, of analyzing yeah, maybe it I'm, I'm brilliant being method dismissing that without uh, really understanding it. <laughs> <laughs> <I tend> to. <laughs> not at all no but editing and writing are two completely separate disciplines i find don't you yes yeah definitely you have to be terribly sensible when you're an editor and the writer tends to get drunk and dishevelled. 
I find. Yeah, I mean, that's the old, that's the you know, right drunk edit sober, isn't it? That's Absolutely, yes. So uh, we veered yeah. away from 1066 and all that. Sorry, should we be more on brand? I think we've done most of 1066 and all that, haven't we? Yes. I mean, we'd, we'd definitely recommend it, wouldn't we? Oh, absolutely. Still recommend it. The thing is, Goodness, it, if there's anybody out there that hasn't read it, I can't quite believe you exist, but but I think you should. I mean, would you? I mean, with 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 all all these books of anything before probably about ten years ago, <laughs> there's going to be stuff that is aged. A has, let's just say aged or is of its time. Yes. But the, the thing about 1066 and all that is, that, yes, there is some of that. I mean, some of the stuff, some of the references to Indian history are possibly a bit flaky. But then I think uh, they're aware of what they're parodying. Yeah. And they undercut it, I think, sufficiently mm. for it to, to still work now. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't think it's as, it is dated in that sense, anything like as much as, as, as some other things are. No, no. That's no, why I I, I did think twice about um, recommending it, and then I I went yeah. back to look at it. I thought, no, 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 it's okay. I can stand by this. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Unlike as we said, some of the Python stuff. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I wouldn't recommend reading it if you absolutely detest history and hated learning history because it would just remind you of it's it's too good <laughs> at what it does to to yeah. make what you did at school rise Figure up. Off all his, all his old, all the bad memories. Yeah, 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 but I adore it, and I'm just going to stand by that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for choosing that one, and thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, talking about it. Absolute pleasure. Thank uh, you for inviting me. You're most welcome. If you've enjoyed this, or even if you haven't but just feel sorry for us, please feel free to reward us by buying our books. You can find the details on our respective websites, Isabel's is isabelrogers.org, and mine is www.jonathanpinnock.com. And do please subscribe. You'll find this podcast in all the usual places. Next time, I'll be talking to Lev Parikian about Nora Ephron's heartburn, as well as his own wonderfully witty series of nonfiction books. See you then. And if you want to get an idea of what Isabel's books are like, I strongly recommend that you head off to the Farago Books website and go to the Stockwell Park Orchestra page, where a magic little pop-out window will appear, offering you a free copy of her short story, The Wedding Piper, set in the Stockwell Park Orchestra universe. Or just go ahead and buy the books anyway. <laughs>